Hello and welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host Sarah Robertson and I am here with Dan Torres. Hey Dan. Hey Sarah, who do we have on the show today? We have two incredibly smart people on the show today to help come and talk about long COVID. Is a Professor Linda Sprague Martinez and Dr. Bruce Levy. I learned a bit about their work when the um, Public Health Institute of Western Mass hosted a seminar earlier this month about long COVID and not just the research into it and the symptoms and the effects that it has on the public, but also health inequities. So I would like to talk about the intersection of those two things today. So um, welcome, guys. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School, and I'm interim chair of the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I'm the chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine and help to direct our COVID recovery center. I'm I'm Linda Sprague-Martinez. I'm an associate professor at Boston University in the School of Social Work. So I think I want to direct my first question at Dr. Levy. During your presentation at that webinar by the Public Health Institute, um, you talked about some of the symptoms of COVID and the research that you've done directly working with patients. And you even started your presentation talking about one patient in particular who had been a healthy 30-something who exercised regularly and had a full-time job and whose life got pretty messed up by long COVID. So would you tell us a bit about what you've learned in your research in that realm? Sure, I'd be happy to. We have organized our care for people with long COVID into a a specialized center of excellence at the Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital. We call it the COVID Recovery Center. And we're seeing approximately 120 to 150 new patients a month with long COVID. And we see a lot of relatively young people, quite active, without a lot of underlying chronic health conditions who got COVID and then more than 30 days later are still wrestling with symptoms. Sometimes they persist and sometimes they are newly developing Mm -hmm. even a month after infection. What is long COVID and what are the symptoms? Long COVID has a very loose definition right now because it's a new health condition and we're not exactly sure all the details. Right now, the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and the NIH roughly define long COVID as symptoms that are present 30 days or longer after having the acute infection uh, with COVID. So these would be sometimes patients who have persistent symptoms uh, and sometimes Patients seem to recover initially from the infection, but then develop symptoms that are reminiscent of the infection uh, 30 days after infection or longer. And the kinds of symptoms people get are really all over the map, but the most common symptoms are new fatigue, especially post-exertional malaise. There are other neurocognitive symptoms like brain fog. It's often the way patients describe it, a fuzzy kind of foggy sensation that um, makes it hard for them to remember things or have a logical train of thought um, or organize uh, their life and kind of efficiently plan their day. So brain fog is a very common uh, symptom. Shortness of breath or cough can be seen, upset stomachs, uh, changes in bowel function, so the gastrointestinal tract is a common place, 
and then sometimes people have problems with their mu- their muscles or their joints, almost like an arthritis. That can happen afterwards as well. And then a whole host of, of symptoms across the board that it's really hard to know how they relate directly or not to this syndrome. Things like hair loss and uh, sometimes problems with the heart or problems um, with the kidneys, on and on. But uh, it's a broad-ranging syndrome that predominantly involves uh, neurocognitive symptoms, respiratory symptoms, probably because it is a respiratory virus. And then uh, it does involve, to some degree, the gastrointestinal tract and some of these other organ systems. I have maybe a a silly question, but I'll I'll ask it anyways. Um, How do you distinguish these long COVID symptoms from other ailments that people might have from other diseases? It's a really good question. And in some people, they have underlying diseases that may be getting worse because of the COVID as opposed to newly developed because of the COVID Mm. infection. But we in the clinical centers, we do an exhaustive um, evaluation of the patient's history, physical exam, some routine testing, and if any abnormalities are, are identified, we, we chase those down to try to, see, to try to answer the question you just asked specifically. In this patient, does this seem to be related to their COVID infection, or uh, could this be not related? and something new and different that requires different different treatment approaches. Yeah, and that makes me think that like treating COVID while we're still coming to understand this kind of array of symptoms seems like a moving target. So like what have you what have you learned in trying to treat patients suffering from this? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are a lot of research studies going on right now to try to get at the underlying disease-driving mechanisms for, co- for long COVID. And once we understand those, we'll be better able to treat it more precisely. And the kinds of theories related to this, um, I might put in like four major categories. The first one is persistence of the virus. Maybe the patient has trouble clearing the virus from their body. The second one is autoimmunity. Maybe people have a tendency to generate antibodies initially to treat the virus, but those antibodies cross-react in some manner with our, our, some aspect of our bodies, our skin, our lungs, our kidneys, etc., and it creates an autoimmune problem, which would require not a treatment of the virus, but a treatment of the immune system. And then the third category is kind of reactivation of a latent infection, a kind of a sleeping virus. And so almost all of us, by the time we're adults, for example, have had mono, Epstein-Barr virus. Usually what happens is our immune systems put it to sleep. They basically control the infection and, and keep it under, under wraps. But what we're seeing is in some patients, some of these viruses like EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, the monovirus, can be kind of reawakened by the COVID infection. And then the fourth, cate- fourth and last category is, um, relates to the severity of the infection. If you had a very severe initial infection, and many people, of course, in 2020 and even in, into 2021 
uh, had uh, problems that led them into the intensive care unit. They were so sick. Sometimes just the organ injury itself from severe illness can lead to persistent symptoms. And uh, it may not be because there's any more virus around or that the immune system is doing something it shouldn't. It could just be because there's scarring or there's other injury to, to organs. And so in terms of treatment, it is a moving target. We are doing our best to treat symptomatically. We are organizing clinical trials that will be NIH-sponsored clinical trials. We expect them to start very soon. They're being considered at the highest levels of the NIH and the FDA right now. And the hope is that they'll get started within the next month or so. And um, we'll start to get some answers. And the clinical trials will be directed basically towards those four categories in some different you know, uh, combinations, I would say. They're going to be trying to address some of those big categories of possibilities for disease-driving mechanisms in long COVID. Wow. Um, I want to bring um, Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez back into the conversation and kind of take a step back. Like before we can be diagnosing people with long COVID and recognizing symptoms and getting to these treatments and these experimental treatments, you need to have access to a doctor to diagnose them. So Linda, I, I would wanted to ask you, like, do we think there's a lot of people living with undiagnosed long COVID? And what impact do you think that's it's having on people who haven't been to their doctor or just waited it out? Yeah, re- really great point. I, I think not only do you have to have access to a doctor, you have to have a relationship with your doctor or provider that allows you to engage in these conversations about what you're experiencing in your body. And then that provider needs to be able to hear what you're experiencing and kind of think through with you in a, in a systematic way to tease out what may be driving it. And, you know, the reality is that we have pervasive health care inequities that exist here in Massachusetts as well as in the, in the country more broadly, um, and, and, to the, and that we all have different experiences with our health care providers. And we know that people of color accessing health care don't have the same experience as people who maybe identify as white or people who um, live in poverty might have a very different experience than um, upper middle class people experiencing healthcare because of inequities and, and underlying biases that exist. And so some of the work that we've been doing is really exploring, well, are there inequities in long COVID? Um, what have been people's experiences? Long COVID is an interesting condition for many reasons. As Bruce noted, we don't know a lot about it. But also long COVID, a lot of our work around long COVID is the result of patients who were writing their stories in online and online communities that they were having these experiences with long-term symptoms. And so much of what we know about COVID um, has been driven by patients getting in those conversations. And so we've been looking at the experiences of diverse Black and Latinx communities in Massachusetts just to gauge, um, to do some early assessment of what are people's experiences with long COVID? What's their awareness of long COVID? Are they seeking treatment for long COVID? Because when we when we digital assessment of the long COVID clinics, why is it that we might not be seeing people um, with long COVID? And so mm-hmm. we conducted 11 focus groups with 99 residents and in, in, in communities where there were high rates of long COVID early on, um, and we conducted them in English and Spanish and Haitian Creole and in Portuguese, just to kind of hear from people their thoughts on long COVID. And one of the things that we learned is that people talked about 
the symptoms that Bruce was describing, you know, exactly. We heard about hair loss. We heard about exhaustion. We heard about dizziness, brain fog, muscle spasms, body pains, um, forgetfulness. A lot. I could go on. <laughs> the list is long, as we heard from Bruce. But when we asked, when we brought up the term long COVID as a diagnosis, people hadn't heard of that. And in nine of the 11 groups, people hadn't hadn't heard of the term long COVID as a diagnosis at all. And our two, two English-speaking groups... Um, People had heard the term long COVID but they, as a diagnosis, but didn't believe that it was a common in the discourse in terms mm-hmm. of awareness of it. And so um, to your point, I could be having these th- different symptoms, not knowing necessarily what's going on with my body, have a conversation with my doctor, be brushed off, which is what we heard a lot of people's experiences who were having symptoms, that they felt as though their doctors weren't hearing them or they didn't know um, what was happening, or it was like, well, this is just something that happens after COVID and, and didn't have that opportunity to kind of further dig into what was happening with their body. And that had negative implications for their mental health and kind of not knowing what's happening with their body, feeling like there could be nothing, nothing could be done about it. So yeah, there, there, in terms of inequities, there are concerns that we could, if people aren't able to engage with their providers in these discussions and get the information that they need about what's happening with their bodies, then that could lead to a further cause for concern. Absolutely. All right. And after this next break, I'm going to ask both of you about what treatments there are for long COVID and who's able to access them. So you are listening to Panorama. I'm Sarah Robertson. and I'm here with Dan Torres. We're speaking with Dr. Bruce Levy from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez from Boston University School of Social Work. And we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez from the Boston University School of Social Work and Dr. Bruce Levy from Brigham and Women's Hospital, and we're talking about long COVID. And I was just about to ask Bruce about what the available treatments are for long COVID, if there are any. Thanks so much, Sarah, and it's great, again, to be with you. Um, There are no evidence-based therapies specifically for long COVID right now, but that doesn't mean that there's no therapies for long COVID patients. We are treating, in many cases, symptomatically and from uh, by addressing some of the, the consequences of having long COVID. So, for example, there's a lot going on in treatment um, uh, for patients' mental health. We're running support groups. Some of them are even patient-led support groups. Uh, it's very important that patients afflicted with uh, long COVID ex- uh, learn from rehabilitation professionals how best to recover from their their illness. So there are many organ-based therapies that are also being used. The most simple example would be if somebody has a cough, treating uh, the cough in a, as effective a manner as we can. So there are organ-based therapies that we're using once we've excluded other causes and we truly feel that the patient has long COVID. Some of them are nutritional. Some of them relate to sleep. There's a lot of uh, problems with sleep disturbance in this population of patients. Um, So healthy sleeping habits, so diet, limited rehabilitation and exercise where it's appropriate. And really step one is trying to um, develop those relationships and the and trust with all all segments of our society that were afflicted by COVID, and we know that minority communities really suffered 
an enormous amount from acute COVID. Uh, emerging data, not surprisingly, is showing that our minority communities are really suffering in a major way from uh, long COVID as well. Mm-hmm. And so the efforts that Linda and her colleagues are doing to uncover disparities in care and to try to help um, move us towards more equitable access to care through our public health initiatives are just incredibly important. I had a question about how often uh, does someone who has COVID end up with long COVID? I think it's estimated that about 10 to 30 percent of patients who had COVID could end up with long COVID. Is that right, Bruce? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen I've seen estimates in the literature about 10 to 30 percent wow. of what's out there, and and I think that you know one of the pieces in terms of just care and seeking care for long COVID is a question of access. Um, we know that um, we did a, an assessment back in March, uh, just looking at where long COVID resources were located. If we were to do a search, and then we kind of mapped them out once we identified them, and we saw pretty extreme spatial um, spatial inequities in terms of access to long COVID, COVID care and resources. And we know that healthcare resources are concentrated overall in the eastern part of the state and in the greater Boston area. Um, but that really was striking when we looked at the long COVID clinics. We identified we identified five, the five long COVID clinics as well as um, the six was Children's Hospital has a long COVID clinic as well. But for adults, um, we, we identified five and then we identified about 102 different rehabilitation sites that were offering long COVID care services across the state. And we saw only one um, out in Western Mass in Hamden County. And it may be that there are limitations to our assessment and there are more, but it's pretty pretty stark um, when you start to, as you move across the state. And we also know that even in eastern parts of the state, there are barriers in access to healthcare facilities with respect to transportation barriers uh, here, let alone, again, as we move west, the transportation barriers become more pronounced. And so, it, and when we think about access and care, we think we need to also think about, well, where are those services going in and how can we as a state really begin to think about making sure in communities where we saw really high rates of COVID, um, for example, Hamden County has had... Um, incredibly high rates of COVID, how can we make sure that there are long COVID care services that are available in those areas as well that people can access? Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's something that we need yeah. to be thinking about. And that makes me think of people who don't even have health insurance. Like yep. what can we do to better serve people that might not even, that didn't even get an official diagnosis of having COVID, much less whatever they're living with after it? Yep. And when you bring up the issue of health insurance, you start to think about, well, what are some of the other barriers to care that people might be experiencing when you have long COVID? What are some of those other social inequities? Because when we heard from people when we did our focus groups, many people don't even have paid time off, you know, so Mm -hmm. let alone health insurance. Not I have to make a decision now. Do if. If I have health insurance, what if I don't have paid time off? I have to take a day off. Um, As Bruce described, the diagnostics for long COVID, there are a series of tests that you might have to work through multiple departments to, you know, you might have to have a pulmonary test. You might have to have another type of test as you're going through. And so that that requires more time off. Um, So not only are you not feeling well, now you're having to navigate medical visits, um, and you may not, in your 
depending on your financial situation, you might not be able to take that paid that time off, not unpaid. We heard mm-hmm. from participants in focus groups who described going to work not feeling well and not feeling up, not feeling themselves going into work. We also, and then this was, for, they talked about doing this for long COVID as well as COVID because they there was no longer paid time off during the pandemic. We did have days off paid, but after you know, those benefits are no longer available. Um, So, And as we move out of the pandemic emergency, we're going to start to see more um, um, benefits that were available um, start to wane. And so I think it's something for us to think about as well. Hmm. I wanted to know, um, if someone does have long COVID, how long do the symptoms usually last? Is it a few months, a few weeks, or can it last years? We heard, I, I know, Bruce, you can chime in on this too, but for focus group participants, we heard people talking about like just coming out of a year wow. of experiencing symptoms in numerous groups. We heard that from people who had said they've had, they haven't been, this is the, this year is the first time they've been themselves. They had COVID 2020, 21 was a loss of all kinds of symptoms, and now they're kind of slowly coming back. Wow. And these are people who describe themselves as, active and so many of the groups people put in that qualifier i was active i was a yoga instructor i was you know a runner people talked about their life before covid and long covid as being a very active life yeah i would add that that's exactly right linda and i would add that um our clinical experience is maybe 30 to 40 percent of people improve within a six month time frame and then another 40% 40% or so improve, as Linda's describing, after about a year. Um, and then there's like maybe 10 or 20% of people that we're seeing even, you know, more than a year out, more than two years out, that still have some residual symptoms. I, I think that we still lack precision in our diagnostic testing, and certainly we lack directed evidence-based therapies. So it's really hard to know, but the goal of everybody working on this right now is to diagnose this with more precision and get people on precise therapies that accelerate the recovery process, accelerate the resolution back to their baseline level of function. So this is uh, of great national concern right now, and it's, it's why the NIH and Congress and um, the CDC uh, and the World Health Organization are focusing so much light and energy on this. So, so, Professor Levy and Professor Martinez, I would like to ask you a question before we take another break here. How important is it to get a vaccine in terms of reducing the potential for getting long COVID? So we now have, um, um, there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that vaccination decreases the risk of developing um, long COVID when you have acute infection. Some of this research is complicated because the the variants of the virus have changed over time. And, of course, vaccination has continued to, to be more and more widespread through our community. But the number of vaccine shots um, was re- related to protection from development of long COVID. So people that only had the first two shots were a little less protected than people that had all their boosters, for example. But the other factor here is severity of illness. And so if you have 
a very severe initial infection, you're more likely to get long COVID. And um, vaccination, while it doesn't prevent COVID, it does markedly reduce the severity of, of COVID. So some of the benefits of vaccination may be simply related to decreasing the severity of the initial infection. So it, it's a complicated area, but it does seem like vaccination is helping. It's not black and white, it's shades of gray. So vaccination is helping, it decreases the risk, but it does not eliminate the risk, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're talking about vaccines in the United States of America, you have to talk about medical misinformation as well. So when we come back, I think I want to ask you guys to help us debunk some myths in maybe the anti-vax community. Uh, We'll be right back. We are speaking with Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez and Dr. Bruce Levy on Panorama. And welcome back to Panorama. I'm Sarah Robertson here with my host, Dan Torres, talking to two experts on long COVID, what symptoms are, what to expect, vaccinations, all that stuff. So I just wanted to address one rumor in the anti-vax community is if you get vaccinated against COVID, could the vaccine itself give you long COVID? Bruce? So uh, we have not seen any evidence for that. Vaccines are protective or neutral for long COVID. So The evidence currently does suggest that they are providing protection uh, to some degree for long COVID, but they do not appear to cause long COVID. The question I had uh, this past weekend, I read an article somewhere in the news that discussed um, the vaccination, uh, vaccines are just as effective as natural immunity. I'm pretty sure people took that article to mean that you see the vaccines are just as good as getting infected and uh, having natural antibodies. So I want to give you the chance, both of you, uh, to at least refute why that is not scientifically sound. Uh, There's no doubt that natural immunity is uh, protective uh, to some degree in healthy hosts. Of course, if you have underlying conditions or on medications that affect your immune system, um, or if you have trouble clearing viruses for reasons that we have yet to really fully understand, then that would not apply. The vaccination durability of the immune response for protection seems to be longer than that afforded by the natural infection. Um, But uh, the the amount of protection and the length of protection after experiencing COVID infection um, is protective, but perhaps not as long or as robustly as the vaccines can afford. I kind of want to toss it back to Linda, having said and understood that. Still, Dan saw an article somewhere online that said infection gives you as much protection as a vaccine. How do we kind of start to address this public health messaging kind of gap that I think we see in COVID risks and our actual understanding. And maybe just add to that also how that affects different communities across the country. I think that when when we start to put out mixed messages, um, it, it, it harms our credibility one, right? I think we saw that with COVID when we have conflicting messages coming out from our public health agencies. And, and that includes when, when our public health agencies aren't putting out messages at all, that kind of creates doubt, a doubt in the public in terms of, 
where to go for information, what 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 information is trustworthy or credible. So, it and it also can get in. We saw during the early pandemic how it can start the rumor mill, right? But I, I I do think, which is why it's important to have robust messaging campaigns. And for for the work that we've been doing, the major outcome that we think needs to happen is we need to start getting information about long COVID out there, and start naming the symptoms, letting people know we need our not only do we need it out there for the public, for patients, we also need it out there for providers. And we need our primary care community to have all of the all of the updated information on long COVID um, that Bruce is discussing in terms of what we already know about it, how to talk to patients about it, how to bring it up in, in a visit and, and ask patients about, have you know, are you noticing any changes in your body? Because if we're not having those conversations initiated by providers, um, and whether it's providers, whether it's, you know, social social care in the community, we need to be kind of start, we need to be having these conversations. We need really clear messaging um, about when should I call my doctor? Because maybe I may be experiencing long COVID symptoms, but maybe I need to be participating in a support group to be talking to others who are experiencing long COVID and thinking about strategies for how will I manage child care? Um, in the context of, of having long COVID, how will I uh, get to work each day? What resources are available for me? I, maybe it's a support group, but maybe there. But then I also need to know when's the time to go to the doctor. When when is it time that I, I need to actually be speaking to a doctor? What are the symptoms that I need to talk to my doctor about? When do I have to go in for further tests? So just having that basic information available um, on a public health website is really important. I'd, I'd like to come back and just emphasize a couple things as well. I totally agree with Linda, but one of them is that um, protection from long COVID is different than protection from acute COVID. And again, vaccines and natural immunity are partially protective, but not completely protective. So if you end up get, having had acute COVID and you did fine afterwards, and then you get another episode of infection, that doesn't mean you have no risk for long COVID. Actually, in fact, the more times you're infected with COVID, the more likely you are to develop long COVID. And then the mm -hmm. vaccine um, uh, durability is, uh, has been mentioned um, previously. Uh, it's the vaccine by dose actually provides, at least there's some population-based data to support this notion that the more you have um, vaccine boosts, the more protected you are from long COVID. So, so I, I just want to make sure we're, we understand that it's shades of gray here. It's not really a black and white. Mm. If you get Bruce, infected, you're completely protected. That's not the case, unfortunately. One thing we didn't talk about, Bruce, I don't know if it's something you want to talk about, is in terms of just the point you just made about the more times you're infected, the more the, sever the severity of your symptoms may all be associated with long COVID. What about treatments? One thing we, we don't talk about enough are, I think, our treatments for COVID, for acute COVID. Is there a relationship um, between if you are, you know, you are, have a COVID diagnosis, you take a treatment um, such as Paxlovid, does that have any protective factors for long COVID? Do you know if that's something you could talk about? Well, we don't have great data on that, unfortunately, but now we are recommending Paxlovid for most people that have acute infection, most adults that have acute infection. Whether or not that provides um, important protection is unclear. 
Again, the severity relationship to risk for long COVID would suggest that this would be beneficial and decreased risk for long COVID, but we don't have data to really establish that at this point. Interesting. So that's an area of active research. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because a lot of people are unaware of, of Paxlovid. I think we talk about it a lot because we work in this space and, and we, we talk about treatments, but when you start to have conversations with people outside of the infectious disease unit or outside of um, COVID research, you people are much less aware of the Paxlovid even. So again, it gets down to kind of that messaging and is that messaging available? Is it available in multiple languages, multiple outlets? Um, yeah. I, I agree. I think, you know, what we may find is that people are working hard on diagnostic tests. And if we mm-hmm. find that we can develop a diagnostic test that separates out people with long COVID who have viral persistence, persistence of the virus, um, th- by doing a diagnostic test to identify that uh, versus people that don't have any evidence for persistence of the virus, then we could probably do an informed clinical trial to treat with Paxlovid, for example, those people who have the viral persistence. And they may actually benefit quite a bit from Paxlovid either at the time of initial infection or um, and with their long COVID symptoms. Wow. Thank you guys for that. And I think we're going to take one more break here. We are speaking with Dr. Bruce Levy and Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez about long COVID. And when we come back, I want to ask you guys about um, some state or, pol- or federal policy measures that we might use to better address our collective public health in the COVID era. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, here with Sarah Robertson, and we're talking to Professor Bruce Levy and Professor Linda Martinez here. Uh, we're talking about long COVID here on Panorama. And Professor Levy, I just wanted to understand this question here. It's been, it just came to my mind. Why is it that when you, one gets vaccinated, one can still get infected with the COVID virus? Oh, Dan, that's a great question. The vaccines are really designed to decrease the severity of the infection. They're not really designed to prevent infection. Of course, preventing infection is extremely difficult because it's an airborne virus that um, all it needs is a little bit of penetration into your nose and you can get an infection. It's very hard to prevent that. However, the whole response to that virus can be mitigated by the vaccination strategy. So there are uh, many examples of vaccines being developed not to prevent entirely the infection, but the strategy is to decrease severity so that you have a less severe illness and that you recover more quickly. And that's exactly the the way these um, COVID vaccines were designed. So it's the way the vaccines were designed because there are other vaccinations for a bunch of other diseases that we polio. get. Yeah, polio and other ones where we don't get the actual Correct. infection, right? Correct. And it relates a little bit to the, the way the, the microbe infects our body mm-hmm. and the amount of organism it takes to infect our body. And then how the vaccine works, actually. The, the polio vaccines really work at the portal of entry for polio, whereas this 
um, vaccine is really designed to evoke an immune response, mm. uh, not at the portal of entry, but in response to the entry of the virus. Mm. So, so that the way these vaccines were designed, uh, that's that was the uh, strategy. It's different. You're right than the polio virus vaccine. I want to toss the next question to um, Professor Sprague Martinez. So we understand that long COVID is going to cause like a slew of potentially long-term serious health impacts for a lot of people. Um, I've even in the news heard that long COVID could become a mass disabling event, um, which was kind of a really grim term that stuck with me when I heard it. But how, what kind of policy initiatives can kind of help address what's going to be like a really heavy burden on our healthcare system? What do you think yeah, about when that? When you said, um, well, when you said, um, the mass disabling event, I thought about um, long-term disability and the process for how we apply for that and the speed and with which that is process, which applications are processed. So I think I'll go there, but I think I'll, I'd start with information, right? People need information about long COVID. They need information um, related to how it impacts their bodies. They need information about when to go to a doctor. So I think from really simple. Maybe it's not a policy, but it's more of a procedural piece that we need a state website on, on long COVID locally for um, for residents so they can go to get where they can go to get information um, about long COVID. I think there are great models of websites that are available. The UK has a really great um, long COVID website um, with clear information um, about what people can do at home, what, when people need to go to doctors, what resources are out there. I think in terms of policy, we need better guidance for employers and workplaces. Um, we need to reinstate paid time off for COVID and long COVID, the impacts of long COVID, so that people can take time off to go to the doctors and not have to worry about loss of income, loss of loss of job in some circumstances. I mentioned this, the disability. Um, for long-term disability, we need faster processing of long-term disability requests. We also need to rethink um, requirements where individuals have to prove a disability, particularly because there's still not, as Bruce mentioned, a straightforward diagnostic test for long COVID. Um, and so we need to really rethink what that means in, in the context of disability applications and how mm -hmm. we, we do that. Also, economic supports. Um, we heard from people in the focus groups. We heard from a person who gave an example of having to sell a car because they, you know, were missing work because of their symptoms. You know, we heard uh, financial burden from um, from participants in our groups that talked about paying for housing, food, utilities. They talked about the benefits of having these resources available during the pandemic. It was helpful for communities when we had um, eviction moratoriums, we had forbearances available for mortgages, we had... Um, food, utility supports, and we have some of those supports still, but I, I think we need to think, rethink the availability of those things during the um, that were available during the pandemic and uh, make them more available again. Policies related to inclusive health insurance coverage that span a range of wellness options, including physical therapy, um, which is important in the case of long COVID, mental health services as well. And then um, state-led incentives to encourage resource sharing between healthcare institutions. There's a huge need for services and only a few providers right now. There are only a few providers with long wait lists. And so how do we think about resource sharing between our healthcare institutions? And then, you know, given the way in which resource healthcare services are spread in our state, we really need to give some thought to transportation for how people can get to them mm. as well. 
So it's a lot, but I, but these are, some of these are things, you know, transportation was an issue before long COVID. It's, mm. it's going to, some of these, many of these were issues before long COVID. Yeah. And I think a lot of your work emphasizes the fact that COVID and the pandemic have just exacerbated a lot these of the inequities that we have. Professor Martinez, <laughs> I wanted to know, I heard that Joe Biden will end the emergency yes. COVID in May of this year. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that happens and uh, what impact would it have on the state of Massachusetts maybe as well with people maybe on mass health? Does that impact the reimbursements of the state of Massachusetts? And yes. how far will the, the coverage uh, before, for long COVID and uh, anybody else who's been infected? Can you talk a little bit about the consequences here for the state of Massachusetts? I can, yeah. I was just writing about. I was writing about that uh, this weekend when I we I was writing out the results up of our of our focus group with Massachusetts residents, and we were talking. I was talking a little bit in the paper about the fact that you know, well, during acute COVID phase, we have testing, vaccines, hospitalizations that were all subsidized as a result of the pandemic state of emergency, and when that's lifted many of the services may no longer be subsidized. And so when we think about, in Massachusetts, yes, we do better than many states in terms of access to healthcare, healthcare coverage, but not everyone has insurance. Many people have very high deductibles um, for their insurance. And so the burden of the cost of medical care for long COVID treatments, tests, as Bruce mentioned, the number of tests that you have to have in order to really sees out what's happening with your body, the number of specialists, given the, you know, everything from neurological symptoms, respiratory symptoms, those tests, there's a price that's associated with them, the time that you're missing from work, but then the cost of the test. And so the concern now is about with that gone, will we, you know, how will we cover the cost of long COVID care? Do we need to really be thinking, be thinking about that and having those conversations? Here's a hypothetical, like you never went and got a PCR test when you had COVID or you never saw a doctor and got diagnosed, but you a year later are experiencing so much fatigue that you can't work. Imagine trying to get that covered under insurance to just go see a neurologist. Did you get long term? Well, how, you know, how do you know that you had how do you know that you had COVID? Some employers it's interesting, we, we heard from people in the focus group. They talked about taking paid time off or long term disability through their employer, but the reality is that that only pays a percent of your income, if you even if you have it. So if you have access to that benefit, those, those benefits only pay a percent of your income. They don't pay your full income. And if you're already living paycheck to paycheck, and now suddenly you have only a percent of your income, that that's not that's still problematic, right? In terms of who's how are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to pay your mortgage? How does that impact your ability to for child for childcare? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're caring for children and, and you're exhausted after you climb up a flight of stairs, like if you're exhausted after you fold the clothes, like it's, it's already hard to parent. And if you have this added burden of fatigue, cloudiness, difficulty focusing, pain, chronic pain, people of color um, have a very different experience interacting with the medical care community. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, when you think about dominant narratives about who's late, maybe you're just being lazy or you're not, you just want to have the, the assumption that if we are having chronic pain or having difficulty breathing, I remember doing focus groups, oh, this was years ago, um, and it was focused on cancer care, um, but hearing from um, from people that their, you know, their doctor thought that 
they just get a handicap parking spot, but they're having chronic pain. But the, that mm-hmm. was it was there were racial stereotypes mm-hmm. that providers were making, and it's it's ironic that we are 20 years out the anniversary right now of the unequal treatment report by the Institute of Medicine where they talked about provider bias and stereotyping. And, and the report concluded that, hard to believe, but per, well, this is the, the, the language of the time, that providers are just as likely as the general public to, to bi- have bias and make <laughs> stereotypes. But when the report came out, it was so shocking. But I think a lot mm-hmm. of us who worked in the area of health inequity knew that that was the case, but, but it, was, it was documented in the report. Mm-hmm. We really need to be talking to our communities to find out what they're experiencing because they're not enrolled in, in, in these in the clinics and they don't have the same access we don't have the same access to clinics and so we need to make sure that we get our story out there as well in terms of what we're experiencing absolutely with long covid so absolutely and i think that is going to be a good place to leave it today we have been speaking with dr bruce levy from brigham and women's hospital and Professor Linda Sprague-Martinez from the Boston University School of Social Work. Thank you so much for joining us and for all of your insights and information into a public health issue that doesn't seem like it's going to be going away anytime soon.